Hello, everybody. Welcome here to the West Stage. What a gorgeous, intimate group of people. And can I say and begin by saying thank you so much for joining us and not Norman Swan. He seems like a lovely guy. We met him in the green room. Um, but, you know, I feel like he's had his fair share of publicity this year and we're very pleased that you've joined us here. My name is Kate Mildenhall. I'm an author and a podcaster uh, and I am so pleased to be here today speaking with these two incredible authors, Claire Thomas and Angela O'Keefe. Uh, before we get into our conversation, I'd like to acknowledge the Ghana people as the traditional custodians of the Adelaide Plains and pay respects to elders past, present and future. We recognise and respect their cultural heritage, beliefs and relationship with the land and acknowledge that they are of continuing importance to Ghana people living today. Obviously, as you know, because of Norman, we've got a situation, a health situation at the moment. So just to reinforce a couple of things, uh, please maintain social distancing wherever possible, except when you come up and fan these two at the signing line, you're allowed to get right up in their face for that part, as long as you've bought the book books. Um, we do strongly encourage the wearing of masks and ask you to follow directions given by the lovely COVID marshals who are wearing green. It is of vital importance that as soon as our session ends, you go over to the bookshop and you buy a copy, if you don't already have one, of Night Blue and the performance, both by Claire Thomas, you can also buy my books because they're there as well, and then um, go over and get them signed. We, we are so thrilled to be back at Adelaide celebrating the arts and as you would all know, it's been a bit of a time for artists and writers and booksellers, so buying books is something that you can do to help. I'm obsessed with creative uh, process and so this is a real thrill to be talking to these two writers about art and the position that it has at the heart of both of their extraordinary novels. Angela O'Keefe lives in, over here, lives in Sydney. She completed a Master of Arts in Writing at UTS and has had short stories published in literary journals. Night Blue is her first book and is about to also be published in Spain, which is very exciting as any authors in the audience will know to have your book translated anywhere. Claire Thomas is a Melbourne writer. Her acclaimed first novel was Fugitive Blue, which won the Dobby Award for Women Writers and was long-listed for the Miles Franklin Literary Award. Claire has a PhD from Melbourne Uni where she taught creative writing and literature for many years. The performance is her second novel. This is the performance. And it's just been published in about a million places. Claire, could you just tell us uh, all the territories that the performance has just been published in, please? So we can be jealous. Uh, the US and the UK. Excellent. And... France and Germany and Spain and forthcoming in Arabic as well with an Egyptian publisher. So that's Oh my gosh. Do you wild. have a special um, shelf where you've got them all in their beautiful... Yeah, it's more of a shrine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so there's sort of triangles of different colours. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Fabulous. Um, for anybody who hasn't yet had the pleasure of reading these, these two books, Claire Thomas's The Performance is set over a single performance of Samuel Beckett's play Happy Days, and it's told through the perspective of three different women as bushfires, uh, a, a bushfire emergency unfolds outside the, the theatre. Angela O'Keefe's Night Blue is mostly told from the perspective of Jackson Pollock's painting Blue Poles, 
Uh, it's quite an extraordinary uh, concept. Um, Blue Poles, which of course was famously acquired for our new National Gallery by Whitlam in the 70s. So I want to begin with your first interactions with those pieces of art. Angela, can you tell us, when did you first see Blue Poles? Well, that's actually, there's a little bit of a story to it. Tell so us. initially, I think my awareness of Blue Poles was when I was sort of 14, 13, and the painting had just been purchased and the whole country went crazy. And we weren't a, a family that really talked about art. And my parents were talking for days about a painting. And so it was quite extraordinary and it, it got were my attention. Were they excited about oh, the they were. They were actually Whitlam supporters, but very much against the painting. <laughs> so I think that... Um, that stayed with me, but I didn't actually... So then in the late 80s, I went to the Queensland Art Gallery with my father, and I remember this day so well, because my father's shoe broke and he tried to fix it with chewing gum, <laughs> which did not work. Um, and I have the... the mem my memory was that, that, that we saw blue poles that day. But then when I was writing the book, I found out the Blue Poles had never been to that gallery. So I realised that memory, I'd sort of overlaid that memory um, onto what it actually, I'd actually seen, which was another Jackson Pollock painting. Um, and I think this just speaks to the way this painting has become a part of the national psyche. And even afterwards, after it was published, when I talked to people, they'd go, I think I've seen it. Yeah, I think I've seen it. You know, I'm sure I've seen it. But you It's know, like one of those very famous so, books that you just say that you've read. Well, I, I, I think people actually genuinely think they must have seen it. You know, so, yeah, anyway. That's, that's, so I didn't actually literally see that painting until I was writing the book. And I was going to... I found out that I'd never been in its presence until I was already writing the book and going to Canberra to sit, sit before it. We, we will get on to the character in your, in your book who sits before the painting. Claire, what mm -hmm. about you? The, the play at the heart of the performance is Samuel Beckett's Happy Days. What's your yep. relationship with the play? Um, I've seen one production of it, apart from recorded productions. Sure. And I saw it, the main actress is Julie Forsyth. I don't know anyone who knows her. She's got, totally, yeah. She's got an incredibly um, idiosyncratic voice. It's kind of squeaky but powerful. It's, it's unusual. And she played um, the central character of Winnie, who is a woman buried up to her waist in the earth. And that's the entirety of the play, essentially, is this woman buried in the earth. And then her kind of ineffectual man comes in occasionally and grunts at her and leaves again. Um, and I remember seeing it and I was just mesmerised by her voice and her... Because it's, it's all her speech. Um, and, and that central image of a woman buried up to her waist in the earth I just thought was extremely profound and had so much metaphorical potential. Um, and it took me, yeah, so over a decade before I actually did anything with 
this play, but I never considered having a different play at the centre of my novel. It was always going to be that. And that, that image, I think, is one of the most striking in modern theatre, yeah. I'm interested in, when you were both writing your books, did you have, for instance, a copy of the play next to you, well-thumbed? Yeah, I had a script and I broke it into sections and worked out which character was going to get which section. Then I timed each section. I also had a recording that I would listen to every now and then when I needed a little Philip. Um, and then I had a lot of pictures I would look at, but then I sort of had my own image of what my production of the play looked like. Because you got to be stage director as oh, well. Oh, look, I was pulling all the strings. <laughs> Although Beckett's not very, famously, not very amenable to adjusting too much. So I was respectful to his wishes and his script, yeah. Angela, did you have a, a copy, a print, a, a something of blue poles up in front of you? I had a scarf. Oh, I had a, a silk scarf with did blue poles on it. Did you wrap yourself in it? I or? did, but oh. not, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily every day. Some days it'd be like, no, I'm not wearing the scarf, you know? But, um, yeah, I I'm had that scarf. I'm mad with you today. And, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you haven't given me what I wanted. Yeah. Um, no, I, I did that. And, and just visiting the painting and also looking at footage of people looking at the painting and, and you know, so there was a lot of that. Uh, the book is so much about looking, yes. you know, looking and, and sitting with a painting. Mm. Your character, Alyssa, does sit there for a, a very long period of time looking at the mm. painting. Did you do whole days in, in front of Blue Poles? Me? Yes. Oh, no, I didn't do what she did at okay. all. Uh, and I didn't write in front of the painting at all. Um, it wasn't something I wanted to do. And when I'd go to see Blue Poles, it was... You know, I was completely immersed in that experience, but I wasn't thinking, oh, yeah, in that part of the... I wasn't really thinking about the book um, foremost. It, the book was back there. And then I'd go walking around Canberra and things would come. That's... That, yes. So her process was not my process. Okay. <laughs> Very interesting. It's always such um, a, a thrill and a great pleasure, I think, to hear writers um, reading. So we're about to get a reading from um, both of these wonderful writers. Um, Angela, I'm going to ask if you would okay. go first and sure. read from, to us from the beginning of Night Blue. Thank you. I began one night in 1952 in a barn on Long Island, New York. Jackson unrolled a piece of Belgian linen, five metres by three, onto the floor. He liked to work on the floor, to be able to walk around and around a painting, to feel like he was part of it, in it, he said. He left the canvas and went to the window, looked out to the darkness, breathed. It was raining, a cigarette between his lips, smoke floating out towards the rain. I don't know how long he stayed there. Minutes? Years. I was not yet colour and time had not settled in me. He turned and made his long-limbed amble across the room, crouched before his tins of paint, prized one open. The smell of me. He stood over the canvas, angled the tin. Years later, I heard that another artist, a friend of Jackson's, had been there the night I began, 
that they wielded paint and ideas along with Jackson. But if they were there, I didn't notice them. I was only aware of Jackson, of his paint-spattered dungarees and the impulsive grace of his movements and his gaze that sought me as one seeks a horizon to dream into, to orient oneself. There were layers of days and frowning and sometimes laughter and outside the rain came and went, came and went, and the smoke of his cigarette went out the window to it. He circled me, giving me drizzles of colour and particles of glass. He was like a bird fussing over its nest. When he left me alone, I watched the sky through the window turn from grey to blue to black. When he returned, the open door let in the smell of the marshes behind the barn. He moved around me, all elbows and knees, a gangly dance by which he gave me not only colour and shape, but memories, the shadow of an ash tree from his Arizona childhood, a recurring dream in which he ran towards his mother's open arms but never reached them. What his wife, Lee Krasner, once said to him at Penn Station as they stood side by side about to board a train, said not in words, but through the skin of her arm pressed to his. We are silence, Jackson. His life gathered in his gestures. His gestures gathered in me. Thank you. Thank you. And we will talk more about Pollock and Lee Krasner and the voice of the painting. Uh, Claire, can you please read to us from the performance? Uh, just for a tiny bit of context, this is... Um, from the perspective of the character Margot, who's in her early 70s. Um, it comes quite early on, and so she's watching Winnie, the woman I mentioned before, who's buried in the mound of dirt. And it, hopefully this gives a good indication of the kind of interplay between what's being watched and what's being thought. The woman on stage is brushing her teeth. Toothpaste froths as she vigorously changes the angle of her hand. Margot despises witnessing this particular bodily behaviour. She's unsure whether it is a behaviour that warrants being performed on stage. It is possibly intended to repulse. Just this morning, Margot scolded John for brushing his teeth before she left the bathroom. His entire process infuriates her. The amount of paste he uses the state of the bristles on his brush, the height at which he spits, the velocity at which he spits, the length of time between spits, the final sloppy slurp of water, the way he grabs the hand towel, not his own towel, and drags it across his mouth so that later she finds dried toothpaste encrusted into the fabric. They have been married for over 40 years. It would help it would help just a little if he could wait until she left the bathroom. And today, of all days, he should have known she'd be tense. Margot had scolded John without hesitation. It was only later when she was driving to work that her stomach clenched with the truth. She had to be more careful now. She had to be much more careful. Woohoo! The woman on stage is trying to get the attention of an, of an invisible man. Poor Willie. Oh, Margot had forgotten about him. Margot saw an amateur production of this play when she was pregnant with Adam, and she remembered the woman in the mound and the light. Margot mainly remembered the light. But of course, there's also the man, the absent and useless male. 
no zest for anything, no interest in life. The woman's genitals are inaccessible. Perhaps that's why he's ignoring her. He can't get to his once preferred orifice. Or perhaps that should be the plural, orifices, if he's a demanding sort. He also seems to have a talent for sleep. Sleep forever, marvellous gift. The lucky bastard. Would Margot, what Margot would give to be able to sleep for hours without drinking for hours first. These days she cannot fall asleep entirely sober. Should I keep going? No, that's not. Give us a little bit more. Oh, okay. go. Would John remember the man in this play? Would John remember going to the theatre at all that night? It was how long ago? 42, 43 years ago? Yes, Adam is 42 now. Will Margot ever be unshocked by the fact of herself as the mother of a middle-aged man? She tries to remember the night she saw this play with John in that small studio theatre down the side street in the south of the city. She tries to concentrate on retrieving everything she can about that one night, bringing the details forward as though her mind is an analogue filing drawer. She visualises a series of white index cards moving towards her. This deliberate remembering is a new thing for Margot, a new practice, or a new praxis, as certain academics in her department would say. Margot refuses to be patronised by Sudoku puzzles or the cryptic crossword. Lifting a pen towards one of those activities announces you as a gullible geriatric. And she has instead embarked on this careful consideration of her past. She made the mistake recently of telling an old friend about it. That's very Proustian, Professor, her friend mocked. Oh, yes, very good, thank you. Can I tell you, I don't know if you noticed, Claire, as you were reading, but there was like full body chuckling from over this mm. side uh, of the audience. So that was very enjoyable. The, it is clear when you're reading like that, the structure and the way that we're both watching the play, we're inside the women's heads, there's something happening on the outside. Uh, and then in the middle of your book, oh, you, you chuck at interval, you give us a script. Can you tell us at what point the structure kind of formalised in your head? Um, so, I, it's a two-act play. I wanted it to contain the novel, so I wanted it to start as the play started and end when the play ended. Um, so, I knew that that was going to be the bulk of the action and the content. Um, and I actually wrote it in order. So, as I said before, I broke the play into sections um, and I wrote and worked out how many sections each character would get. Um, I like to have constraints mm. and parameters to contain my wild head. So the parameters kind of, then I went everywhere within them. Mm. Um, but I always knew I kind of had this pending doom or excitement as I got to Interval, because I knew I couldn't do this. I had to do something different with Interval. Um, but I wanted that to be a moment and I was going to just do a sort of third person narrator and float between but and then I was quite pleased with myself when I came up with a script I, I, I did think it was it, it's very meta the whole but book I was is like, very okay, meta yeah let's just double down well it's a risky premise it's a risky yeah. premise in, in any way you've yeah. got three women watching a play, like in, in, a, in a time of thrillers and action and make sure that your, you know, audience does not put down the book because they could pick up their phone. It was already a risky premise. <laughs> and yet you make so much happen. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it helps that there's a bushfire crisis unfolding on the outside of town. 
that gives a certain um, pressure um, because they're contained and they're unable to act, which, of course, is um, loaded, but we'll maybe touch on that. that. Yeah. Angela, let's go back to this extraordinary voice of the painting because I, I tried in my research to go back and go, okay, there's got to be like a body of work about paintings that talk and, and there really doesn't <laughs> seem to be. Mm. So I want to know how you got into the consciousness mm. of the painting and the kinds of rules you made for yourself about what that voice mm -hmm. was and what the painting can think and see and feel. To start with, I don't think of the painting as talking. Good point. It's, it's not, you know, it's, it's actually, of course it's speaking, but it's not, it's in a different way that we speak. Yeah. Um, but I, I was writing a novel uh, and there, were this, there was this scene at the kitchen table, people talking about blue poles, a family, you know, I mean, it wasn't autobiographical, but you can tell where that came from. Um, and the rest of that novel, I mean, it just sort of fell away, but this blue poles kind of stayed. So I had that there. And then I read Heather Rose's The Museum of Modern Love, and I just loved that book. And there was the muse telling the story, and I just adored that. And it, it wasn't in an instant, any sort of instant light bulb at all, but one morning, I, I'm a big believer in you know, sleep sort of giving you a direction, and, and I woke up and literally thought, what if the painting speaks, and to me speaks in the way it does, not, not as talking. Mm. And I went straight to the computer, and by then I'd already been, you know, knew something about Pollock, I knew something about where the painting was created, and I literally wrote those first paragraphs, like, that morning. And the voice was there. It was like it was waiting to, to, for me to find it, you know? It, it was there. Alyssa, your character in the book, has a moment when uh, the understanding of the painting is unlocked for her through a, a particular thing that she sees. Did, did it feel the same way for you, that the, that the voice was unlocked? Uh, I don't know if my experience was like hers. I, I don't... I mean, it was unlocked quite... Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great observation. I wouldn't have thought of that. But, um, yeah, it was that a sort of a light bulb moment. Can you tell us... Oh. Go on. Can you tell us a bit about the character of Alyssa? What, yes. What her relationship to the painting Absolutely. is? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> now I'm... <laughs> I can tell you how she came about, and that might help. Perfect. Um, so she was part of that other book. I went to New York myself, uh, went to, to Pollock's barn and, and, you know, saw that extraordinary floor with, with all the bits of paint from Blue Poles and other paintings. Um, and just the act of making that trip made me realise, ah, Alyssa actually goes to the barn, you know, duh, I hadn't thought of that, you know. So as soon as I put her in that direction, she just came to life, you know. She, she oh, okay, she's, she's um, been to see the painting when she was younger. She visited the painting while it was in storage. Um, 
and she's got a thing about Pollock, you know. And really, so I had that, but then her problem with Pollock, you know, and I know you're going to maybe talk about this. Tell us about... um, So her problem with Pollock, you know, being someone who'd been violent towards his wife and just had this incredible, this image of just being so a drunken, violent person, um, puts her off the painting. She hates the painting, basically, because of its maker. Um, And I wasn't going to... So, while I was in New York doing my research, my daughter happened to be there, and we had this conversation where Sophia said, Mum, what's... How does the painting feel about Jackson Pollock? And I said, oh, the painting doesn't know anything about that stuff. It doesn't know anything about it. Um, And she said, you cannot write this book in this time, with me too just kind of here, um, without sort of including that. So I thank her for that because I realised, yeah, this is the heart of the book. So I know I've gone a long way around that, but... I realised that was the crux of of the book and so I realised that Alyssa could be that person to to hate Pollock and to find some other way Mm. without giving away what happens. Mm. (laughs) Both of of your books have um, women's experiences, women's anger, women's frustrations kind of at their core. Claire, when I was um, reading yours, I took a bunch of photos of different pages and underlined things and sent them to people. Um, And I know when I put something on Instagram, people were like, yes, yes, exactly that feeling. Um, Mm. You wrote in The Guardian, the question of scale, what to care about and how, what to notice or ignore, how tightly to focus one's attention, is a key quandary of life quite beyond the making of art. And I want to ask you about this, con- this quandary. Uh, I think that is everything that I'm trying to understand in everything that I do. Um, so there's a lot... I suppose that idea of scale, um, I could answer that in a few different ways um, in terms of this book, what I mentioned before about the containment, finding a vessel to kind of provide the parameters around everything. Mm -hmm. So otherwise, I'm a person who's just too interested in everything and it's overwhelming and Mm -hmm. I have to find a way of narrowing that down. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean about scale in the the kind of creative Mm -hmm. sense. Um, And also in terms of using an an existing piece of art or literature um, that can also provide a sort of scale because I feel that I'm first and foremost a reader. Like I've always been a reader and a viewer and a watcher and a consumer um, and haven't always been a writer. And all of that stuff comes at me and the, the output is the grappling with the scale, like which part of it to, to kind of um, respond to, reject, push back on, have a conversation with. And so if you actually have an artwork at the centre of your own creation, it's kind of making that 
fundamental process really overt, so it's making it very explicit. So that's another kind of scale. And um, my first novel was called Fugitive Blue, and the one of the epigraphs for it is actually in Angela's book, uh, and it's a Goethe quote. And it, uh, hopefully I'll remember, it says, we love to contemplate blue, not because it advances to us, but because it draws us after it. And I think that also answers the question of scale. So the idea that blue is the horizon, it's the, it's the colour of the globe, it's the sky, it's the sea, it's, it's vast, and it, but it's just an adjective, you know? And so both of us use the, what the, the potential scale of blue and wrote novels, but also... Um, there's a minutiae to that. Yeah. So it's, yeah. I mean, as I said, I could go on about scale forever. Well, I um, think also the minutiae of um, the women, I, there, there was a, a bit in there that just made me laugh out loud where Summer, who's one of your characters, is both contemplating, the, you know, the vastness of the play, looking at it all, and also working out that her decision to buy oh, cheap milk yeah. is really problematic and is she doing the right thing and what what cost like what price point is the most eth most ethical and sustainable yeah. and I think like that level of scale too particularly for women and what goes on in women's brains is one that you do so well thank you I think and with the different so Summer's the youngest woman she's in her early 20s and she says explicitly at some point I don't know what or she doesn't know what to care about mm. the most or how to how to choose what to care about um, so she hasn't worked it out. And I think Margot, the other woman who's the oldest, she's got a much more um, refined and developed sense of what she's going to give a shit about. And she controls her thinking much more explicitly. I mean, she's a professional, critical thinker. Mm. And she, has, she does that in her own life. Mm. So she's, she rejects a lot of the input that's extremely distressing to Summer, who hasn't developed those... Um, that's that sense of boundary and mm. yeah what what to how porous to be mm. in the and world and margot has yeah, still she's not kidding got herself it all. Yeah. but you know there's some extent absolutely yeah. um angela we touched on before this idea of uh jackson pollock and uh the problem the problematic nature of how mm. we separate artists from their art and how we feel about them and when they're cancelled are we allowed to like the art anymore and all those kinds of ideas. Mm -hmm. Your book is very much both a book about Pollock and a book about Lee Krasner. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about that relationship and what you wanted to draw out between Pollock and, and Krasner and for audiences? Well, when I first started researching, I was actually really shocked at how yeah, abominable Pollock behaved. I hadn't realised the extent of it and I wondered if I could actually write the book and I also wondered, uh, you know, my way around it was, was to have the painting not knowing about any of that but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get away with that and, and I'm glad I didn't try that. But um, Lee Krasner was was such an amazing artist and she, in their life together, I mean, she, she always painted and she said that somewhere she, in an interview, she said, I painted before Pollock, 
during Pollock, after Pollock, you know, and and it's like she was sort of invisible though, while he was was um, so needy, and and having his fame really. Um, so I wanted to. I mean, she comes into it, and and I just got to to know her, I guess, a little bit. I mean, she's not in it that much. But I gave her a scene at the end that I'm really happy about because I feel like that scene somehow gives her something, gives us something to see in her rather than, oh, Jackson was everything to me and now he's gone, you know? Mm. Um, it was more about holding up her work. Uh, yeah. How did your relationship with the idea of Pollock as the artist change over the time you were writing? It's really strange, isn't it? But because I wrote from the point of view of the painting, I realised the painting unconditionally loved him. <laughs> and so a little bit of that rubbed off on me, not all. Um, so, I, you know, I have a tenderness for him uh, as well as, as a sense of revulsion. Um, and, and as far as art goes, I mean, it's very easy to say, OK, we're going to cancel so-and-so, but what if you've already imbibed that art? What if you, you, you're, you're living your life in a certain way and having certain thoughts because you've experienced that art? It ain't easy. And, and I think that's fascinating and I don't have any answers for that, but mm. I just think it's really, really fascinating. Mm. This, this is a question for both of you because I know, um, Claire, that you, you've got a preoccupation also with visual art as well as yeah. the fact that we've got um, the plane here. Your relationship to an artist as opposed to the art, how does it play out in your life? I don't, I'm quite resolute that these things are inextricable. And I think that um, that was what I found so uh, interesting about Angela's book because it was this, this kind of removal of the, the painting from the artist. But then at the same time, I think there's a lot of violence in Blue Poles. Mm -hmm. Like visual, to me it seems absolutely um, a reflection of all of the chaos and the control and so um, and and almost like the idea of the painting as um, complicit in the in the presentation of this behavior I mean that's a whole lot but um, but yeah I tend to not respond to the sensibility of misogynist awful assholes and I have not and I'd, maybe I'm just lucky that no one that I'm passionate about has been well, revealed to be um, something that I'm not expecting. Mm -hmm. I've, I have not had that experience. So I think that, that, that idea of something that you're already in love with, if you then have to... I, I probably could, though, to be honest. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I tend to, uh, yeah, I respond to the, to the whole and I think I can, I like to s think I can see the sensibility in what's produced. Angela, you were going to respond there? Um, I just think, you know, I think of Woody Allen, like I would never really go to his movies anymore. I would want to see them. But I, as a 
teenager and in my 20s, I, you know, they, some of those films were very formative mm. and, you know, I, I, you can cancel him but you can't undo what you've gained or, or experienced. You know, you can't undo your own experience. Mm. I guess that's my main point. Mm. And, and so I, I think it's not just something that, you know, it, it's not something that can be cut out without its little, little threads or tentacles mm. already mm. in you. Mm. Um, yeah. That's a beautiful image, the idea of those tentacles. I am going to let our audience know that um, while I do have a million questions for these two, I will give you a chance uh, in approximately seven minutes. Uh, so if you'd like to start articulating your questions for Claire and Angela, when it is time, I will get you to come up to the microphone. I want to ask you a little, uh, both a little bit about the kind of context outside of the story that's happening. There's a particular political context in terms of mm -hmm. Whitlam for your um, mm. story, Angela. And Claire, for yours, this idea of the, the climate crisis is kind of there happening on the outside. At one point, Ivy, who's one of the characters, thinks dying Earth definitely, but not dead Earth. That distinction is everything. That distinction is where the hope hides. And I, I wanted you to just talk a little bit about your approach to writing the climate crisis into this book. Yeah. Um, I, mm, I wanted to consider that because I wanted to write a contemporary work of fiction. And for me, I felt I, it had to be there in some way. I didn't want to place the characters in immediate peril or put them in a future kind of peril of some kind. I wanted to actually look at um, just how people are processing, like how a few people are processing that at, in this moment in time, which is a very small grappling. Um, again, it comes back to the scale, this huge thing. I just wanted to embody it in three people. That's all. Um, but then the, 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 the fires are just a literal thing that happened in summer. And this idea of the theatre space being this kind of air-conditioned bubble of culture where you can choose to withdraw and deny the reality of the burning world or you can sit there freaking out about it while you're still in it in, the, in your coal bubble of culture but you still can't you're still ineffectual so um, there was different um, engagements with each of the characters and also when I came to look properly at the script again there's all there's there's a few moments in Happy Days, which was written 60, you know, 60 years ago last year was its premiere. And it's got all this stuff about melting and, and that was just, um, that was exciting to see. Uh, and I gave particular lines to particular characters who I wanted to have that grappling with. Um, and you do your stage direction via the eco-feminist uh, new director of the Oh of the yes, place. yes, it's an eco-feminist production of Happy Days, which just means a production with a proper brain. <laughs> um, yeah. 
It's very interesting, I think, to um, obviously for our audience, I'm assuming, and for you two, the moment that we're in right now, that we attend a writers' festival and an arts festival and we engage with the works that are in front of us and we are art-loving people and at the same time, half of our brain or more than half of our brain is in Lismore and Ukraine and, and everywhere else that it is at the same point. So it is this meta idea of how on earth... Uh, what role does art play in, in our lives? Should we be attending a festival or should we be driving up to Lismore or putting all our money to Ukraine? You know, like... Yes, yes, yes. yes. So it's really, it's really <laughs> problematic, isn't it? It's difficult. Tell us what to do, Claire and Angela. <laughs> Your turn. Oh, boy. <laughs> Thanks. That's a hard one. Um, I just don't think art is this lovely embroidery on life mm. that's, you know, out there on the edges. It is bloody well right centre, you know, about us. It's about us being. So I, I just don't even consider that mm. a, core, a, a question, really. And, and I think that it is about what's happening in Ukraine. It is about, you know, it may not be in, in subject-wise, but... You know, it's all connected. Art connects to everything, I think, about humans being. How do you find... I'm asking this question now for me. Um, how do you find the, the focus and the capacity to keep creating your own art in a world that feels like it's burning around us? Well, I think... I, I agree with what Angela just said about... We, it's, not, it's a false dichotomy, this idea that there's art and then there's life. Or, you know, there's things that matter and there's the cherry on top. You know, that's not how it is. But it can feel like that. Mm. Like, mm. no one cares mm. about my stupid thought. You know, my tiny thought doesn't matter. That's more... I think in terms of a person who's trying to make art, mm. that's a harder thing to grapple with. And the only solution to that is just to do it. Mm. And 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 know that you, yeah, you just have to run with whatever, whatever you have mm. and, and not censor it, even if it does seem trite, even if you're not grappling with what you should be grappling with because mm. you've only got your own sensibility in the things that you respond to and you either can do it or just curl up in a ball and despair. Good. We're not going to do I, that. One more thing. I think art is very good at pointing to something, like not pointing to something and yet pointing to it. Mm. Uh, and just the, the writer Natalia Ginsberg mm. in her very short novel called The Dry Heart. It was written in 1947. She's Italian, so that she'd just been through the Second World War. There's not a word in it about the war, but the war is on every page. Mm -hmm. So that she's a, she did. I mean, that just I just admire that so much. So yeah, I think this is a lot more complex than saying, do we write about climate change or do we ignore it? Mm. I, th I think for anyone in the audience who was um, at the session with Christos and Charlotte earlier, I think that discussion about what we gain from being in the presence of art as well mm. was really significant and how the juxtaposition, I suppose, of art and the world that we're in, if we do look at it as a dichotomy, which I think you know, our government does. <laughs> Lots of people outside but I don't the respect their does. So, no, you know, that's not a view we need to kind much. of run with. No, we we don't need to run it. <laughs> how, how do you bring um, 
how do you continue to bring art into your daily life when it's not what you're creating yourself? Christos was talking about um, when he was blocked that he will just go to a gallery, for instance, and sit mm -hmm. in front of a painting. Do you have that kind of practice in your own writing practice? Yeah. Oh, sorry, you, you go. Um, yeah, I'm. as I said before, like I'm very engaged with um, all sorts of things. So I never stop finding something to absorb. Um, it's when to kind of wring out the sponge that's more my problem. So how do you know which part of the sponge to wring out at which time, Claire? Well, Kate, there was 13 years before my, between my first and second Excellent. novels. So there's a lot in the sponge. Don't know. <laughs> um, but there's not going to be that long between the next two. But um, that was about not thinking that anything that was worthwhile for all that time. How did the... How did the piece that... How did I get over it? Yeah, exactly. How did you get over it? I just got bored of myself. I was mm. so sad and tired by not doing it and by, by hating everything I thought and everything I responded to. And I just, like I said before, I got to that point where I, can, I have to just accept what I am and what, I have, what my world is, what my thought, you know, and, and do something with them. Or I will just not make anything and, and yeah, I decided I would prefer the first option. I'm so glad that you did. Uh, yes, applause down there. If you do have a question, can I ask that you make your way to the microphone now and in a moment I will come to you. Um, Claire, you just said that it's not going to be another 13 years, which I'm thrilled about. Would you like to tell us what you're working on next? Um, I'm writing a novel um, it's a bit it's a bit eccentric um, it's got even more art and text in it than this one so That's the exciting. copyright dramas are going to be interesting maybe um, the working title is on not climbing mountains oh good and it's yeah it's, it's kind of about Switzerland and a mother and a daughter and a cat. Okay. Uh, and I think your publicist is here, so we're just making sure that you grabbed that as the pitch line for the for the new novel. Oh, it's catchy. <laughs> as you said, that's a real thriller like this. Yeah. yeah. Um, I should say that this should uh, this should have had a warning before it because artists uh, writers are notoriously kind of cagey about talking about what they're writing at the moment. <laughs> Angela, you're allowed to say in as little or as much mm, as you would like okay. what you're working on. So I'm working on a novel. And its title is Switzerland and Lemonade. And what? it's about, it's partly about, partly, there's an overarching story, another overarching story, but it's partly about the wife of a famous artist. And you probably know who that is from the title. Um, Go, so it's I Suzanne. Don't because, it's Suzanne. Okay, amazing. Um, and. That's probably, yeah, so is it, it's... Is it it's Switzerland um, significant? Switzerland, it's not set in Switzerland. Oh, okay. It's called Switzerland. So I'll explain that. He, when they had a, a really difficult... Thing, yeah. they, no, no, they had a very difficult marriage and he, uh, at one point they 
pretty much parted for good and he said to his mother and his sister, my wife only cares for Switzerland and lemonade. Oh, good <laughs> line. So, yeah. Angela, do you think that this kind of fertile ground of um, the stories behind artists and artworks is going to be where you stay? In no, your... I don't think so, but I'm writing this one and mm -hmm. I think after this, no. Okay. Because, I mean, I, I don't have... A background in art, really, and but for some reason I've written these two books. Did that terrify you? Because I know that you know, as as a writer, often as we go into our research, we feel like we need to have a, almost a PhD in whatever mm -hmm. we're writing about. Mm. Did you feel um, worried about not having a at times? Yeah. But I also felt quite fearless because I had the voice of the painting and I kept coming back to this idea, the painting has a life of its own and so does this book. And I'm just going to circle that like Jackson circled the painting and whenever I was stuck, I would go back to that scene. So it was a real sort of genesis moment. <laughs> I love that. What about you, Claire? Mm. Do you ever feel like you... I mean, you do have a PhD, but yeah. it's not in necessarily like, oh. <laughs> the material that you pull yeah. up for each novel. Um, I, but I, I can research. Yeah. Do you know when Quite to stop? Quite a lot. Do yeah. You, yeah. That's what I was going to say. I can research till the end of time. Um, yeah. So, no, I haven't. But I, I guess, again, it comes back to what I respond to. I wouldn't choose to write a novel about hockey and, you know, I don't know, hockey seems to strike me as something I'm particularly not interested in. Um, I just wouldn't. So, yeah, so far I have used my kind of previous life experiences or expertise or study, because um, that's comfortable for me um, but yeah we'll see I'll, I guess that will be exhausted at some point and I will I mean but I also yeah as I said I, I'm comfortable with research and finding stuff out and I love that so I don't think that'll ever change. Does it ever get in the way of the narrative? Does, does you knowing that you want to get the detail down on the page get in the way of the fiction that you're creating? Is that ever a problem? I don't think that's for me to say. Ah, okay. I, I'm probably in the first book. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I need some more Venetian colour. Let's do that. I mean, yeah, this is more self-consciously researched. Yeah. It strikes me that something, even in the green room today, I was talking to the lovely... Um, Pip, Pip Williams, who the Adelaide audience will know very well, and we've had an ongoing conversation about the fact that you can get so deeply involved in the research that you want your audience, your reader, to know everything that you know about the, the thing. Yeah. I, I think I felt that more... Um, hopefully that was just my juvenilia and I'll... Yeah, you were like just that. vomiting it out. Yeah. OK, that's excellent. Um, I, I, everyone's so scared of getting up. Is there anyone who would... Yes! Great! Excellent. There's a question. Cool. Um, I really loved what you were talking about, um, about how, as artists, we engage with broader societal issues. Um, I was wondering um, if either of you had any words on how art and fiction can influence audiences as well, not just the people creating the art, but the people consuming it, how that can influence 
yeah, audiences' um, engagement with the broader kind of world? Great question. Angela? Uh, well, I think the audience is the main thing. I mean, you know, you have the experience of writing a book, but I, I just think the audience... I mean, the audience makes it a different book, really, in a sense, because it's their experience. And, and then, you know, and everyone has a different experience. So is that sort of what you mean? Yeah, kind of, like how... Or do you also mean know. about activating people? Yeah, so, so, something yeah. like that. Like, mm -hmm. not necessarily, um, like, causing people yeah. to, you know, run out and do whatever, like, run off to Ukraine and fight in a war, anything like that. But how, I don't know, how people... The, I don't know. I don't know It's quite. an incremental yeah. kind of... Thing. And I also, um, we all have different roles. I, and so I think um, sometimes with all this conversation about art and the world, and you can feel ineffectual if you're just a person who puts sentences on a page and you should really be a different kind of activist or you could be both or, you know, what's a better use of your time? Um, but I think that just there are different roles and people respond differently. And, I mean, readers, who knows what they will take or what glimmer of some little shift in thinking or understanding you might get from a book. I mean, that, that's huge. Just if you think about one thing in a slightly different way, that's a lot to get from a book. Mm. Thank you. I agree. Thank you so much. Before our next question, I'm interested and wanted to ask, I have never seen blue loopholes in real mm. life. Mm -hmm. I've never seen a performance of Happy Days. Um, I'm interested now in doing both those things. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask you about what you see the relationship between your work and the actual um, art at, the, at, at its mm -hmm. heart and in terms of... Has, has the National Gallery said that there's an uptick in people going to see Blue Poles who have oh, also read your book? I you think know. there's a lot of people going to see Blue Poles anyway, but the book is there in the bookshop, which I'm very happy oh, about. Nice. And a lot of people who, you know, tell me that they've read the book say, I'm going straight to Canberra, you know, I'm, I'm going to Canberra next holidays. So that's a I fabulous think that's activation. so wonderful. Yeah. Um, yeah, that makes me feel good. What about you, Claire? Um, well, there was an incredible production of Happy Days that came out that sort of the same month that my book came out in the UK. So I was in London and was um, directed Clever by Trevor. Clever marketing, Claire. Yeah, I, I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was fully leveraged sufficiently, to be honest. But anyway, okay. um, and it, the Winnie was played by Lisa Dwan, who is a kind of iconic um, Beckett, well, the leading performer of Beckett. Um, now living um, and I, I heard from a couple of readers who either read the book and then saw that production or vice versa and that was exciting um, I'm I think I can't even yeah I, I think it's quite distinct yeah okay uh, yeah I mean yeah, we'll see. I don't think this will be around in 60 years. Well, Just you never example. know. You never know. <laughs> yeah. We've got another question. Hello. Quest question for Angela. 
Um, our book club has just finished discussing the book. In oh. fact, there are seven book clubs at the art gallery that are discussing your book. So that's oh, so thank that's, you. That's <laughs> very good. Very nice. Um, but the, the scene that um, towards the end, after Alyssa has finished her time in front of the painting and taking her notes, mm. and then suddenly a parcel arrives in the gallery wrapped mm. in silk, and excerpts of her notes are scattered throughout the, the gallery. Mm. And uh, none of us knew whether this was a dream. It seemed very surreal-like. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you want to explain or not. Mm. Uh, I don't want to explain it, but I, I think it's like a... I mean, I saw it as, as certainly happening, but like a kind of a dreamy happening. If if you if that makes sense, um, I mean yeah I did wonder would people be able to understand that you know was it was it right to be in there but it felt like it was it felt like it worked to me um, and yeah I don't really know what else to say but um, it just generated yeah. some thought and discussion yeah so, thank you thank you. And what wonderful news to hear that so many book clubs are yeah, studying the book. Yeah, that's so good. Thank that's you. That's really fantastic. Um, another question. Thank you. Um, this is to everybody, not just one particular writer. But um, when you start to write, and you've obviously got a little bit of an idea, how, um, how much does the story just continue on? And how much do you have um, already in your head, like as far as the beginning and the middle and the end. Claire. Um, yeah, well, as I said, I sort of have a, had a macro structure, so I had a, quite a clear sense of the end and the beginning and the middle. So what happened within each of those sections was more um, organic in the writing process, but I definitely had the, kind, the, the ultimate sort of end point uh, in play. But I'm, I don't know if I'm typical. I'm quite um, a planner and I'm, I'm doing that this time as well. So I, again, getting that big structure so then I can go crazy within the little sections within the big structure. Um, I, I don't think most writers work like that, uh, but that's just what I've accepted is my way, I think. I love it when mm. we accept and we don't just push mm. against the, the way. Right. What about mm. you, Angela? I can relate to the, the having, a bit, having the vessel, that that was yeah. when I felt like, yes, this is, this is actually such a pleasure. I mean, it was all a pleasure to write, but when I, ha I knew the painting was going to have the last word and mm. that was that was important to me and it just kind of was, I was able to hold, the, well, it felt like the book was held by that somehow, but uh, my process was very much kind of a lot of trial and error really and, and a discovery along the way, definitely discovery along the way and going, oh, why didn't I realise that before? But it was, it was um, it, that, that's always very satisfying to realise that you've kind of almost led yourself there, you know, or been led there. <laughs> mm. It's a delicious moment. Thank you. Great question. We've got uh, another one. Time for one more. Thank you. Hi, thanks. 
Claire, my question's for you. My name's Sonia. I've read your book and I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. And I've really enjoyed listening to you speak about it, uh, particularly that uh, concept of scale. And, and I think in the book, you do go out and you do come into that minutia. Yeah. My question is, um, could you speak to the question of whether there's connectivity between Happy Days and the imagery and the symbolism within Happy Days and what's going on between the three characters. So to the point of whether it's more than just your focal point and the, the setting, or whether there's a, a linkage between that from a symbolic perspective. Uh, well, I, yeah, I mean, I suppose that, that, that central image of the trapped woman, that manifests in each of the characters in different ways. I mean, they're all literally stuck in their chair and one of them does flee the theatre space to some extent. Um, so there's that. And then just the different kind of impositions that they are all dealing with, all the different um, performances they're undertaking to, to get through the day in the same way that she is. So there are all those resonances. Um, is that what you asked me? Yeah. Uh, and then... Um, the littler moments, sometimes I had something that I wanted the character to be thinking about and then I found it in the, t in the script and I was like, oh, I'll land back in there. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes it happened the other way. The, the character would be thinking of something and then I'd be like, oh, that'll go with the music box that's about to turn up um, in one minute and 30 seconds. You know, so that... It, it varied, but it was... And also, there's very little of the play in the novel in terms of the proportion um, of the play in its entirety. Seems like there's a lot in there and you're almost watching it with them, but it's a very small proportion of the whole. There's so much in Happy Days. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we are nearly at time and I want to let you have time to race over to the bookshop <laughs> and get both of these books. Before I let you both go, considering we are here at a festival and we are talking art, is there something that you're particularly looking forward to mm. seeing at the festival, reading, an author that you want to run into in the green room and a cost? I'm looking forward... Well, I actually was really excited about Colin Torbing. Yes. And then I realised I'm not going to be here on Thursday. And then I realised he's zoom being Zoomed in anyway. So there was no way I was ever going to meet him. But I adore his work. I'm really looking forward to seeing Eve Rees yes. talk about their book. I met Eve at Varuna last year. Oh, and wonderful. they actually read one of the chapters. So that's something I'm very much looking forward to. Fantastic. And Claire? Um, this is maybe a little off topic, uh, but I saw something last night that I w will rave about for a long time to come, the production of Rite of Spring. So I, I don't know how long it's lasting. Yay. Well, I was just... Yes. Um, and it was incredible and extremely memorable and I'm very excited that I got to see it. So, yeah, I would... That was the highlight so far. Wonderful. And, of course, um, in the end, really, there's nothing else to do but to give the last word to both of your wonderful works. Night Blue by Angela O'Keefe and the performance by Claire Thomas. Can you please thank both of our amazing authors? Thank you. For being here and speaking with us. They will both be...
signing at the signing tent. My name is Kate Mildenhall. It's been an absolute pleasure having you as our audience today. Thank you so much for coming.